0: I love that song, especially when it says, Oh God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. It's very fitting as we <clears throat> come to God's word that we say that and we confess that together. Uh, we don't say, Oh God, reveal your glory through Pastor Josh's witty preaching, right? Uh, oh God, reveal your glory because Pastor Josh worked so hard in his studies this week. No. God, you reveal your glory through the preaching of your word, and I've had some conversations with a few of you uh, in the past few weeks asking about why I wear the robe, and actually the whole focus on me wearing the robe is to take the focus off of me. It's to put the focus onto God and onto his glory. At the time of the Reformation, the the Roman Catholic Church had all their, their fancy vestments and things that put so much focus on the priest. And the Reformers said, No, we're done with that. We're going just with black, which is going to put the focus on God and His glory. And it takes it off of, of me. So when we say, Show us Christ, I get up here because I'm not saying, Look at me and look, look how smart I am and look what I have done and look what I have to offer you. That's not what it's about. And if you're coming here for that, I've said this before, if you're coming here for that, you're going to be disappointed. Because there's other places you could go, on YouTube, or there's other places you could go in town where you're probably going to hear better preaching. But that's not the reason why we gather. We don't gather to hear just from a man. We gather to hear from the Lord through his imperfect vessels. Well, Psalm 30. (laughs) You can turn there in your Bibles. If you have the Pew Bible, that's on page 461. A few weeks ago, we were in Psalm 13, and I opened with some lines from some familiar tunes that reflect uh, hope for brighter days ahead. You can see the title of the message is, A Firm Hope for a Brighter Day. We looked at some of those lines. One of them was, ooh, child, things are going to get easier. Ooh, child, things are going to get brighter. But then we asked the question, what if they're not, right? Right? What if it feels like things aren't going to get easier in our lives? What if it feels like things aren't going to get brighter? And in the Psalms of Lament, that is a serious consideration, right? Look, remember Psalm 13, how it opened up. David had those four rapid-fire questions that all started with, How long? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? All the day, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We're actually going to see some of those questions answered here today in Psalm 30, which is a psalm of thanksgiving. We've also seen the last two weeks after the psalms of lament. We did two psalms of confidence, Psalm 23 and Psalm 27, and we we talked about how the psalms of confidence are this experience between the psalm of lament and the psalm of thanksgiving. And the confidence in those psalms is not in our situation. We talked about this last week. The confidence is not in our situation or what we can do, but it is in the character of God. So hold on to that idea of misplaced confidence because we're actually going to see that here with David in Psalm 30. Again, Psalm 30 here, it's the song of thanksgiving um, that... comes after the psalm of lament and after the psalm of confidence. The psalms of thanksgiving, they express joy and gratitude for deliverance that has already happened, a deliverance that has already been experienced. So this is the deliverance that the psalmist cries out for in the psalms of lament, and it's the deliverance that he confidently praises God for and looks forward to in the Psalm, psalm or song of confidence. Now, in these psalms of thanksgiving that we will see this week and next week, uh, this is a typical way that the psalms of thanksgiving are organized, that there, is that there are three sections in them. The first section opens up with praise and thanksgiving to God for what he has already done to deliver us. The central section there then mirrors the song of lament. There are some recounting of the trials and the tribulations that the psalmist went, went through, and there's a continued petition for deliverance. And then it closes with a reflection on, and a renewed sense of thanksgiving for God's deliverance. So It's kind of opening with thanks for deliverance, recalling of what's going on in the middle, and then closing with thanks for deliverance and a, and a future looking forward. So Psalm 30 follows that pattern pretty closely. So if you're taking notes, kind of as we, as we go through it, that's going to be how, we're, how we outline this psalm. So we're going to see verses 1 and 3. Uh, are that opening thanksgiving, that opening praise to God for what he has done. Then verses 4 through 10 is going to be David kind of sharing his experience and what he's gone through. And verses 11 and 12 kind of come back around to that idea of of thanksgiving and praise. So let's go to Psalm 30. Uh, Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning before your word, God, we ask that you would open our eyes. God, you would open our eyes to hear, to receive wondrous things from your law. God, help us to embrace Christ more fully by faith as we see him in the scriptures, even as we see him pointed to here in Psalm 30. Thank you for the work of your spirit in our hearts to open our eyes to open our minds, to open our hearts, to receive you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if you're taking notes, uh, we kind of have three main sections here. The first thing is, we see that we must praise and thank the Lord for our already or present deliverance. We must praise and thank the Lord for our already or present deliverance. David's praise here, and thanks to the Lord, in these first three verses, has some very vivid imagery. He begins here by saying that he will extol the Lord. And the meaning behind that word for extol, it's often translated in the Psalms as exalt. And also can have the meaning of to, to lift something up, to lift something up very high. And I think there's a bit of a double meaning going on here with David's use of this word. Now, when we extol someone or something, it means that we speak very highly of it. In a sense, we lift that thing up for its value or its worth. But clearly, God cannot be lifted up, right? Literally, we can't lift God up. And even metaphorically, there's a sense in which we can't lift God or exalt him any higher than he is already exalted in his glory. So David I think could have chosen another word here that maybe wouldn't have conveyed that meaning. But I think the double meaning comes out here after the word for in verse 1. David says, I will lift up the Lord for or because he has drawn me up. This is really interesting here. This word here for being drawn up, it's the word that is used to draw water out of a well. So David is saying, when I was in the pit, when all hope was lost, God, you drew me up from the well, right? You drew me up from the pit, and you lifted me up. Now I will turn and lift you up, and I will praise you. So you see, David is kind of has this double meaning here of the, of the use of that term. And then notice the result of this deliverance, how the Lord drew him up. Notice the result in verses 2 and 3. David's foes are not allowed to rejoice over him. That's the end of verse 1. His foes thought that they had finally gotten rid of David. But David cried out to the Lord for help, and in the midst of his despair, God healed him. And he brought up his soul from Sheol, and he restored him to life from among those who go down to the pit. This picture here, this is a mighty deliverance of David's life. Some commentators think because David says, you healed me, that he is merely speaking of a physical illness when he talks about being healed. But it's more likely that this is a statement of God's kind of general and total total deliverance of David's life, since he talks about his soul being brought up from Sheol and being delivered from the pit. So there's kind of this multifaceted, his health is restored, he's saved from death, and he's also saved from his enemies. And if you were here last week, I quoted from Calvin on Psalm 27, speaking about our confidence in the Lord's protection of us. And his encouragement to us was that even though we oftentimes feel weak, right, in our flesh, even though we feel discouraged, he says, let us from the high tower of our confidence look down upon all our dangers with contempt. That is exactly what David is expressing here. He's saying the enemies will not look down upon him with contempt, but exactly the opposite, right? He will stand on that high tower in the place that God has placed him, and he will look down with contempt upon death, upon sickness, and upon the enemies who are taunting him. But, and there's always a but, right? But David was just like us. He was not immune to overconfidence in his own abilities. He was a sinner who needed to be saved by divine grace, just as we do. I think this next section here is very instructive for our Christian lives. Just like David, we must praise and thank the Lord for our already or our present deliverance. And what does that look like for us in our lives? Individually, in our Bible reading, as we recognize what is true of ourselves if we are in Christ. I think especially about passages like Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, where it talks about us being dead in sin, but then alive in Christ, being raised up, being seated with Christ in the heavenly places, being saved by grace through faith, not a work of ourselves, right? But the grace of God that has saved us. And that, Understanding that embrace of Christ by faith, that ought to inform our prayer lives, both individually and corporately. We ought to praise God often, verbally, out loud in our prayers for the deliverance that we have because he is rich in mercy. That's something I've kind of been challenged myself to do lately. Just even when you're praying for a friend, like, Start off and just thank God for what he's done in that person's life, right? To save them. And it's, it's an opportunity to, like to preach the gospel to that person, right? By reminding them of who they are in Christ. That if you're about to pray for someone for some trial or struggle that they're going through, don't just dive right into the bad stuff right away, right? Start by thanking God for what he's already done to deliver them from sin and death and to encourage them so that they can face the struggles that they're going through, right? That's hard, and I would encourage you to you know as you're praying for other people to try to try to do that it's something I've been challenged to do lately and we should also express this corporately this is what we seek to do week in and week out when we gather here together together to worship the Lord right we talk about this all the time here at Livingstone we don't just look backward We don't only praise God for his deliverance of us in the past. We must also continue to cry out to the Lord until our future or not yet deliverance comes. That's the second point if you're taking notes. We must continue to cry out to the Lord until our future or not yet deliverance comes. So that's what David experiences here in this central section of the psalm in verses four through 10, where he recounts, his own troubles, and he communicates to the people of God his own need for mercy. We see this specifically in verses 4 and 5. David leads the people of God, and he commands them to sing praises to the Lord and to give thanks and praise the Lord, for, to praise his holy name. David's job as the worship leader of God's people is to point the people to the reasons that they ought to worship God. It's not to point them to themselves, but to point them away from themselves. To point them to God. This is the thing that makes the gospel so counterintuitive. Every other religion, every other worldview in the world says, look within, right? Be strong. Have faith in yourself. Be a better you. To that I say, hogwash. Look to God. Praise God for what he has done for you that you were not able to do for yourself. Praise him for his mercy that he has extended to rebels like us. That's what David does here. Look at verse five. I love this verse. I love the contrasts that we see here in verse five. His anger is for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Anger contrasted with favor, momentary contrasted with a lifetime or forever. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Weeping and joy are contrasted; night and morning are contrasted. Again, we quoted uh, from from Calvin last week, and I just reread that one uh, verse. Calvin is super helpful uh, in his commentary here on verse 5. He writes, "However much God may terrify and humble his faithful servants with manifold signs of his displeasure, he always sprinkles them with the sweetness of his favor to moderate and assuage their grief." He then goes on to quote from 2 Corinthians 4:17 and 18 in relation to this where Paul writes, "For this light momentary affliction, right? This light and momentary affliction, which God has allowed us to go through as his people, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, we see that, right? We see that contrast language there. And this is what Calvin says about that, about that verse. He says, In the meantime... So in this not yet where we currently live, right? In the meantime, it is observed that God never inflicts such heavy and continued chastisements on his people without frequently mitigating them and sweetening their bitterness with some consolation. Listen closely to this next part. Whoever, therefore, directs his mind to meditation upon the heavenly life will never faint under his afflictions, however long continued. Let me read that again. Whoever therefore directs his mind to meditation upon the heavenly life will never faint under his afflictions, however long continued. And it may be a long time, right? He goes on, and comparing them with the exceeding greatness and manifold favors of God towards him, he will put such honor on the latter as to judge that God's goodness in his estimation outweighs his displeasure a hundredfold. Brothers and sisters, is that our experience? Can we speak with this same amount of confidence that no matter what comes our way, no matter how great the trials and the tribulations we might face in this life, that they are far outweighed by the goodness and favor of God that has been extended to us. I'm preaching to myself here. It's so easy to focus on the negative things. It's so easy to complain about stupid little things. Take this mask ordinance, for example. I've spent more time since Thursday being bent out of shape about this than I have been praising God that we still get to gather together and to be in his presence and to sing his praises. That I get the privilege to stand up here and to deliver God's word that is the very food for our hungry souls. And I'm sitting here worried about who's going to show up or who's going to not like this and how all of these things are going to shake out, all these things that are beyond my control. This is rubber meets the road Christianity right here, folks. And we honestly have to ask ourselves, what if things get worse? I mean, what if they get a lot worse? I know Chinese pastors who are on house arrest right now. I've worked with people who have worked very closely with Chinese pastors who are in prison right now for long sentences, just for preaching the gospel. I've already shared this, but our our best friends, our best missionary friends just got kicked out of the country a couple weeks ago, right? Christians are being persecuted heavily in, in China, in Nigeria, other places around the world. We haven't been promised an easy path. I think this is another reason why Psalm 30 is so appropriate and so timely for us. Look at how David responded to God's favor. This is so interesting. This is actually a confession here of David. As he stands up and he encourages the entire congregation, he he has this confession in verses 6 and 7. See, David got a little cocky. David thought that because God had been good to him and shown him his favor, that he wouldn't be moved, right? See that in verse 6. As for me, I said in my prosperity, or that word can be translated ease, right? Things were going really well, David says. And I said, I shall never be moved. But this wouldn't happen to us, right? I mean, we wouldn't have this same type of self-confidence, Listen to what James Boyce says in his commentary about David's sin and ours. Self-confidence rather than God-confidence is a common failure among us. Blessed as many of us have been with abundant wealth and viable education and technical skills. As a people, we think we can prosper by our hustle. As a church— we think we can manage our affairs and advance our work by secular skills and fundraising techniques without relying on God. As a nation, we think we can survive on the strength of our military might and industrial production. What a shaking there will have to be. What calamities before we again humble ourselves under the hand of God and look to him to exalt us in his way and time. Just reading this morning in my Bible reading plan. I'm in Jeremiah 29. If you're familiar with, you know, one of the probably one of the most quoted verses, misquoted verses, <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11 to 13, right? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Everybody loves quoting that verse. But read the whole chapter, right? What's happening? God says, I'm sending you to Babylon. I almost just kicked my water over, sorry. I'm sending you to Babylon for 70 years. Everyone he's talking to is probably going to die there, right? He says, I'm bringing judgment upon you. And we want to go quote this verse in the middle of this whole book about judgment and in this chapter about judgment. And we want to say, oh, it's all good. God's going to take care of me. Well, he will, but not in the way we might think, right? It's not confidence in ourselves. It's not like, hey, all's going to be good. Like, nothing ever bad is going to happen to me. We need God to humble us. And I'm not saying you can never quote Jeremiah 29, 11 to 13. Just know the context of it, right? We need God to humble us just as he humbled Israel and just as he humbled David. And how did God do that? God hid his face from David. The very thing that David asked God not to do in Psalm 27, verse 9. We saw that last week. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. The worst thing that could happen to us ultimately in our lives is for God to turn his face away from us. And David cries out and says, Lord, do not hide your face from me. And notice his response in verses 8 through 10 in God hiding his face. David cries out to the Lord. He pleads to the Lord for mercy. He says here, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? David's saying, God, what good is it if I'm dead, right? I can't praise you if I'm dead. I can't, the dust won't praise you. If, if you take me out, if you ha- ultimately hide your face from me, that's not, that's not what you want, right? And he cries out again in verse 10, Be merciful, O Lord, my helper. Hear me. He cries out just like he did in Psalm 51. After he stole another man's wife and had that man murdered, he cried out for mercy and he confessed his sin. Notice the plea in Psalm 51, verses 9 through 11. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Here we see David asks the Lord to hide his face, but not from David himself, but from his sins. What a reversal! Despite the deception and the adultery and the murder, despite David's self-confidence here in Psalm 30, David's life was a mess, right? Despite all of that, the Lord had mercy on David, and he heard his cries, and he delivered him. David was not the perfect king who would provide ultimate deliverance for God's people. But there was a perfect king who was promised to David himself in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when the Lord said that he would raise up one of David's offspring after him, and that the Lord would establish his throne forever. David only saw that in a mirror dimly. But folks, we see it fully When the very first words of our New Testament are the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the long-awaited seed of Abraham and son of David, the perfect king, the only one who can make the realities at the end of Psalm 30 our realities. This here is our song of thanksgiving that we can shout from the rooftops if we are in Christ. Look, to, look at it with me. Verses 11 and 12. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Our firm hope for a brighter day is pictured right here. And we get this now because of what God has done for us in Christ. And we can have confidence now, not in our own ability to hang on, right? And to do what it takes by our own strength. But we can trust that the, that the one who saved us is the same one who will keep us to the end. That we will persevere because Jesus, our shepherd, will not lose any of the sheep that have been given to him by his father. And we've talked a lot about this like the already, right? But there is still this beautiful not yet element. We, we look back, we praise God for his deliverance, just like David did here, right? We recount all that we've been through, all the struggles we've been through, how we've trusted in our own confidence. We confess our sins to the Lord. We confess to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we turn and we look forward, right? We look forward to our future ultimate deliverance. We look forward to the resurrection from the dead, right? We look forward to being in glory together, praising God for eternity. As we prepare this morning to come to the Lord's table this is the exact reminder that we need. This is the exact picture that we need. When we come here, we look we look at these elements, right? We look at this bread and this wine and it causes us to look back and to praise and thank God for a deliverance that has already been accomplished for us, right? Christ died once for all in time, right? To save us From sin and death. And all those who put their trust in him have the promise of forgiveness of sins. And we turn and we look forward then, right, to eternity with God, to the marriage supper of the Lamb when we will feast together forever. So there is always this turning back and this turning forward, right? There's always this praise for past deliverance and this future hope for a promised coming deliverance. That is what we see in these elements. That is what we get to proclaim as we come, as we take these elements, as we remember what God has done for us in Christ. So this table is open to all of those who have professed faith in Christ, uh, all those who are in good standing in a gospel-preaching church. Um, We ask that you would come down and take the elements. They're... there is red wine in half of, half of the trays, uh, white grape juice in the other half of the trays. And then there is a—it looks like an empty cup next to it. There's a very tiny wafer. It is—they're gluten-free in the bottom of the cup. So you're going to take two cups that are next to each other, right? Don't touch anyone else's cup. Just touch your own cups. Take two cups— um, you can probably do it with one hand very carefully if you want to. Um, come down, take the elements, and we will return to our seats and we will all partake together. Uh, I'd like to pray first for the kids who are not taking communion. Usually we pray um, when the kids come forward, but we're not having the kids come forward. Uh, if, you, if you have to bring your kids forward, that's okay. Uh, if you can have them remain in their seats, that's, that's better. Um, I should probably put this on down here. So um, let me pray for uh, the kids, and then you can come forward. Father, thank you for uh, your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your promise of deliverance. And Lord, we ask that uh, these children uh, who you have placed in these homes with parents who are seeking to to live for you, uh, to walk with you, God, to honor you by raising up their children, by bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God, we ask that you would have mercy uh, upon these children, that you would draw them to yourself, God, that they would never know a day apart from you. And that as, as their mom and dad and as we as a church uh, seek to, to minister to them and to encourage them, God, we ask that you would, uh, you would strengthen them, God, that you would keep them, and that they would trust you and walk with you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.